children's worship. Uh, the Grace Kids sign over here. And if the rest of you would grab your Bibles and turn to Acts chapter 1. Acts chapter 1. Alright, well hopefully you're there in Acts chapter 1. And this morning we're going to begin our series in the book of Acts, uh, which we've entitled uh, Missio Dei. And you're like, what in the world is that? was Latin for the mission of God. Um, and it's actually a, a phrase that was not just used in Latin-speaking world, but throughout uh, the Christian world for many years, um, Latin became uh, a, a language that was spoken all over, a lot of different places. And so the mission of God. Um, and we will, by God's grace, work through the whole book. All right, all 28 chapters, trusting that God will use it to transform each of us individually. Uh, to transform us as a local body of believers, that we would be actively and intentionally participating in the mission of God. That's my hope uh, over these next 28 chapters. Not 28 weeks, 28 chapters. All right? Uh, We'll see how many weeks it takes us to get through uh, Acts, but uh, that's our hope, is that we will understand and participate in the mission of God in a greater degree for the glory of God and his mission as we work through this wonderful book of Acts. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word. Lord, I even thank you for Luke 13 there that Jared just read. And um, Lord, Jesus' very urgent message for the people of that day, the people he was speaking to. And Lord, I pray that we would receive your word today from Acts 1 with the same sense of urgency. And we we trust that you have uh, called us to this book of Acts at this time, uh, in this place, for this people. And Lord, I pray that you would uh, make our hearts soft and moldable, and our lives submissive to your word, that we might be on mission with you. We might be about your mission in this world. Well, we can't do that without you. We can't do that without God the Holy Spirit living in us, living through us to fulfill the mission that you've called us to. So Lord, I pray that if uh, we are not about that mission already, we'd be about it today. And if we are, we'd be more effective for your glory, for the glory of your son Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen. When you think about the word mission, what do you think of? Comes to your mind. Maybe it's San Antonio and the mission downtown. Some people think about when they think about the word mission, they think about a place. Maybe they think about a people. Maybe they think about a cause. They think about a task. And all these in in some way have to do with uh, the word mission. They're all related to the word mission. Uh, The the, the World English Dictionary actually defines mission as a specific task or duty assigned to a person or group of people. All right? A specific task or duty assigned to a person or a group of people. Now, about two and a half years ago, I preached on a sermon from Matthew 28, 18 through 20, very similar to this, actually called the mission of the church. And one of the ways I had us think about the word mission was by pointing uh, to NASA. 
Um, and uh, we don't have as many people here from NASA as we once did. Is Sarah still in here? There she is. All right. We're going to have one representative of NASA now. All right. We sent them all off as missionaries to be about the mission of God. We did. And uh, we're thankful for that. But NASA, um, and, and Sarah will probably remember this, probably stood out to her. Uh, they, they had this space shuttle program that went from 1981 to 2011, and then it ended. They defunded um, the uh, space shuttle program so we could go back to the moon in some ways. But each of these flights um, in space was referred to as a mission. Each, each of those flights, and there was um, actually 135 missions with the space shuttle. It's hard to believe that. I remember back in 1981 when the first one, and then I remember it ended in 2011, and I, I didn't know there was 135, but there's 135. And each one of them had certain objectives they were seeking to accomplish. For, instance, for example, the very first space shuttle mission, STS-1, had the following objectives. Demonstrate, demonstrate safe launch into orbit and safe return of the orbiter and crew. Verify the combined performance of the entire shuttle vehicle, the orbiter, solid rocket boosters, an external tank. Now imagine what would have happened if there was no mission, if there was no task to be accomplished in 135 shuttle missions. We as taxpayers would be up in arms. You mean you just went up there and flew around for the fun of it? Now some people I think that's all they did. That's not true. Um, but that would be they would not have nearly they would have not accomplished nearly as much as they did accomplish in those missions, if there wasn't a mission, there wasn't a task or an objective uh, to be about. They would have been a total waste of their time, talent, and our money, right, if there was no mission. When I worked for the Fellowship Christian Athletes, we had a mission statement. It was to present to athletes and coaches and all whom they influence the challenge and adventure of receiving Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord and serving Him in the relationships and in the fellowship of the church. You're thinking, how does he still remember that? It's been 12 years since he worked for FCA because it was pounded in me over and over again. This is what we're about. And we can't lose what we're about. We can't lose our mission because if we lose our mission, then we go around and we waste time. We waste resources if we lose our mission. And FCA did not, was not clear on that mission. It would not have been nearly as effective ministry for the last 60 years. They just celebrated their 60th anniversary this past year. It's a ministry where thousands of coaches and athletes heard the gospel for the very first time including my wife but if FCA would have lost their way and lost the mission of presenting the gospel to athletes and coaches I don't know I mean God, God has his way right but who knows when my wife would have heard the gospel but she heard it at a fellowship Christian athletes meeting because FCA was committed to their mission when a person or group of people is clear on their mission and faithfully works at fulfilling that mission, then they will have a much greater opportunity to fulfill that mission and be successful. And knowing the mission of God for the church and working to fulfill it is the most important mission that we can be about. It's imperative that we have a clear understanding of the mission of God for the church so we can faithfully seek by God's strength to fulfill that mission. The great news is that the mission of God for the church is clear. And listen to this. It's guaranteed to succeed. With or without us. I just want to remind us, you know, God doesn't need us. A lot of times we think God really needs us. Man, God couldn't do anything without me. It's not the way it is. 
God will find somebody. And He does use people, believe me. He uses people. But He will use other people if we won't get on board, right? And thankfully He does. He uses His people and He's promised that, that Jesus promised that He would build His church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. It was a promise. It was a guarantee He would build His church because it was Jesus who was doing the building. And He incorporated a lot of people in that, involved in that. But it was He that accomplished the building of the church is accomplishing the building of the church. So the question is not whether or not the mission of God will succeed. The real question is, will we experience the joy and fulfillment of joining him in his mission? That's the question for us this morning. This morning we're going to see God's mission clearly communicated in the very first part of the book of Acts. And then we will see it carried out throughout the lives of God's people through the rest of the book of Acts. It's interesting, this, this first 11 verses we're going to lack out this morning by God's grace. Um, it's kind of like a table of contents. It's like an introduction of a book. Uh, in some ways, even a forward of a book is involved here. A summary of the book. Um, and, and this kind of tells us where the book's going. Now, we like that. Most people, when they get a book, that's what they do. They go to the front, and they read the introduction. They read maybe the, the forward, and, and they read, okay, what's coming up? And it gives them kind of a, a vision of what's coming up and look, what they can look forward to. And that's what the, the first 11 verses of the book of Acts do, does for us. So let's turn our attention here to the text here in these first 11 verses. And they're going to show, that, and as we work through here, it's also going to show us the context. All right? They're going to tell us who, the point to the author and clearly present the mission of God for the church. Now I'm going to work down through these verses. We're just going to take them you know, one or two at a time and some, look at some phrases there. And, um, and I'm going to explain, to them, explain them to you as we go. And near the end of our time together here this morning in God's word for us, I'm going to present four ways by which we, by God's grace, can carry out the mission of God for the church. So let's look here at verses 1 and 2 first. Uh, The first account I composed, Theophilus, about all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up to heaven and after he had, by the Holy Spirit, given orders to the apostles whom he had chosen. Here we see the author of Acts mentioned that there was another account written that was addressed to this guy named Theophilus. All right, to what account is he referring? There's another account. Yes, we got some people answering. Good. Yes, we got. We find this in the book of Luke. Uh, look here, and this is verse, verses one through four of Luke. Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile an account of the things accomplished among us, just as they were handed down to us by those from the beginning, were eyewitnesses and servants of the word. It seemed fitting for me as well, having investigated everything carefully from the beginning, to write out for you in the consecutive order, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the exact truth about the things you have been taught. Now the other account, obviously, composed to this guy named Theophilus was the Gospel of Luke, and Luke is the human author of Acts as well. Did you hear what I said? He is the human author of Acts. God is ultimately the author of all 66 books that we have before us. But he used people. Uh, to bring those to us. But Luke is the human author. And, and this is supported. I don't have time to go into this. If you want more support, I'd, I'd be really easy to give you a whole bunch of support. But this is, the, this, this is supported by multiple internal and external evidences from the Gospel of Luke and Acts that Luke was the author. Luke was a traveling companion of Paul, and we see that. Paul mentions him in, in three books, Colossians, Second Timothy, and also Philemon. He mentions Luke. He's referred to as a doctor, so he was some kind of medical doctor, it seems, um, at the time. Uh, and, and the fact that he traveled with Paul, and Paul mentions him, explains his first-hand 
knowledge of Paul's ministry. Now, the second half of the book of Acts is about Paul. Okay, you can have you have main people involved. Really, the first part, and this is not perfectly divided, but the first part of Acts is about Peter, and the second is about Paul and how God used him. And you wonder, how in the world would this author have so much information about what was going on in Paul's life and his ministry? Well, the, the, the reason that he could do that is because he traveled with Paul. And, and there's also multiple passages in Acts where the author says, we, we, he's including himself in the events that are taking place as he describes them. Now, some of the things in the first part, you don't see we, because he wasn't necessarily there firsthand information, all right? He didn't see all this take place. He didn't experience. And then it says at the beginning of the Gospel of Luke uh, that he says he had... He had things that were given to him by eyewitnesses who were with Jesus, and then he did serious investigation by those who were to, with, with those who were eyewitnesses. So Luke went on a mission. He was very detail-oriented. You can see that in the book of Acts. And he asked questions. Tell me what happened. And he gets around those people who had seen Jesus and saw what Jesus did. And, and he gets around people who, who, who here at the beginning of the church and, and the, the day of Pentecost and the things that Peter did and where Peter traveled and, and w- w- what the apostles did in Jerusalem. He gets around and he listens and he hears and he, and he records these things somehow without error. Which is true of all of the scripture. Without error. And, um, and he did this for this guy named Theophilus. And, 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 it, and it says he did, he did it um, so that, in Luke 1, 4, so that you may know the exact truth about the things you have been taught. It's thought that the office was, was a Roman official because he's actually referred to, as you see there in, in Luke 1, most excellent Theophilus. Um, and Luke wrote these two books, Luke and Acts, to either call him to faith in Christ or to strengthen his faith in Christ. We don't know that. We don't know whether he was a believer or he wasn't a believer. Because we don't know a whole lot more about the office, but we know it's got to be one of those two things. Because he says, I want to give you an accurate things about the things you've been taught, the things you've already heard. I want to give you more information. So therefore, the purpose of Acts is to accurately present the spread of the gospel through the world so that others might know and place their faith in Christ as well. That's the purpose of Acts. Let me say that again. The purpose of Acts is to accurately present the spread of the gospel throughout the world so that others might know and place their faith in Christ as well. Uh, the title of this book uh, in the earliest Greek manuscripts that we have is Acts or Acts of the Apostles. And many of your Bibles will uh, say the very same thing. It's also thought that Acts may not have had a separate title from Luke in the very beginning, that they came together. It's kind of Luke 1 and Luke 2, or Second Luke. All right, that, that they went together, and there's so early on we don't have we don't have the original manuscript, um, but the earliest manuscripts, the Acts of the Apostles. But early on, the thought was is that they just went together. Um, it's also been suggested many times that a better title would be something like the Acts of the Holy Spirit. You ever heard that? And and you can see as we work through the Book of Acts, you can see uh, why some would say this. A good title would be called The Acts of the Holy Spirit. And let me just say here that I don't necessarily believe that all the titles of our books are divinely inspired. In fact, many of them didn't have titles. They were given titles to help explain what was in them. Now, the words in the text are divinely inspired, but these, the, the titles often were given so we could... Okay, what, what's the summary? How would you summarize this? Right? Um, uh, I like what Bruce Wilkinson and Kenneth Boa's suggestion for a title uh, to the book of Acts. Here it is. The acts of the Spirit of Christ working in and through the apostles. 
Because as we saw when we studied the book of Philippians, when I asked the question, who's at work? You or God? What was the answer? Yes. Both of you are at work. And in the same way, yeah, we could call it the, 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 the acts of the apostles, and that would be true. We could call it the acts of the Holy Spirit. Because both are at work. The Holy Spirit is working in and through the apostles and other people, as you will see here in the book of Acts. Now, concerning the date um, of Acts, when it was written, uh, there are four significant points to consider when we think about when was this written. Uh, Luke, first of all, the first one is Luke does not mention Paul's trial in 62 A.D. If it was written after 62, I guarantee you he would have mentioned this trial because it was huge. Uh, Luke, secondly, would have mentioned the severe persecution by Nero in 64 A.D. That would have come up when people were getting lit in Nero's garden as they were dipped in wax and lit on fire to light his gardens. You think Luke would have recorded that? You bet he would have. But he doesn't record that. And he didn't mention Paul's death in 68 AD. And lastly, the fourth thing that's significant when we think about the date of the book of Acts when it was written at least, Luke does not mention the fall of Jerusalem in 70 AD. He mentioned none of those things. So we know it has to be written before Paul's trial in 62 AD. So most people, and, and evidence that really demands this is that the date of this the writing at least of acts the recording of acts was just before paul's trial in 62 a.d so that's why we know that now liberals would say people who don't really believe the divinely inspired word of god that this is god's true word they would say it was written 70s 80s 90s some even believe it was written in the second century because they don't take the word of god for what it is and they also don't don't, i mean i just be honest they don't think are you kidding me? He would have mentioned all those huge events in the life of the church if they already had ever happened. He wouldn't leave those out. He leaves them out because he ends the, the, this, this uh, letter, this book, this really the first church history book, all right, before Paul is tried. Uh, so all those point to a date early in 62 AD. Look at me again now at uh, verses uh, 2 and 3. Until the day when he was taken up to heaven, after he had by the Holy Spirit given orders to the apostles whom he had chosen, to these he also presented himself alive for his, after his suffering by many convincing proofs, appearing to them over a period of 40 days and speaking the things concerning the kingdom of God. When Jesus rose from the dead, he appeared to the disciples and others. We, we see that. If you read in the Gospels, you see that happen. Uh, Luke says here, he did it with convincing truths. I love that. When he appeared, he convinced them that it was really him. So some of those would most likely have been showing up in the upper room when the doors were locked. Oh, how'd that happen? Now, a lot of people say that Jesus walked through the wall. We don't know exactly how he got there. We just know he got there and the doors were walked. He could, locked. He could have um, walked through the wall. He could have just... I don't, we don't know. But we know that he got in that room and the doors were locked. And he wasn't a Navy SEAL. All right, he was Jesus. This was a divine thing that happened. He wasn't. A, it wasn't a magician's trick. All right. Secondly, and maybe one of those convincing truths was allowing Thomas to touch his hands and feet. You think that convinced Thomas? We know it did. He cries out and falls down. Oh Lord, my God! It was a convincing truth. He also ate with them on a number of occasions. 
It was really him. His, his glorified, resurrected body, which uh, I think is a precursor to what our glorified resurrection bodies are going to be like, it could actually, he could take food and digest food. I mean, he could take it in and then like fall out of him. It wasn't like a ghost or something. He really had, he was a literal, physical resurrection of the body of Jesus Christ, now in a glorified, in a, in a resurrected state. So those, all those things, and I think we probably have more, were convincing truths that he had risen from the dead. He appeared to them. And, and as you read the, the accounts, it shows that Jesus was not with them constantly over this 40-day period that he appeared to them. He, he came and went. He was with different groups of people. All right, you go read the road to Emmaus. There's these two followers of Jesus Christ, and, and they're, they're talking about the events, and all of a sudden, Jesus appears. They don't know it's him. He's walking with them, and... They start talking about it. They are clueless of what's going on. Jesus then explains to them the scripture. And it says their hearts burn within them. As he explained the word of God to them. I love that. My prayer is I hope our hearts burn within us as we look at God's word. But he appeared to those people. He was here and there and different places at different times. Now Paul gives a few examples of this when he writes in 1 Corinthians here you can see 15 4 through 7 and that he was buried and he was raised on the third day according to scriptures and that he appeared to Cephas then to the twelve after that he appeared to more than 500 brethren at one time most of whom remain until now but some have fallen asleep then he appeared to James then to all the apostles so during this 40 day period Jesus is appearing to multiple people with convincing truths that it's really him and that's what Luke is recording here in Acts um, after verse, uh, in verse 3 here in, in Acts 1, it says he taught them, look at this, it says he taught them concerning the kingdom of God. The apostles, after Jesus' crucifixion, were frightened and surely thought the kingdom of God was now a lost cause. I mean, after all, we don't even have a king anymore. How can you have a kingdom when the king is gone? And they had to be going through their mind that the kingdom of God, God is gone. It's a lost cause. It's null and void. When Jesus rose again, he wanted them to know that the crucifixion did not cross out the kingdom of God. So he teaches them when he appears to them about the kingdom of God. God's promise of his kingdom that it was coming would be fulfilled. And he wanted them to know that. That's what Luke records for us here. Now look at verse uh, 4. Gathering together, he commanded them not to leave Jerusalem. Why did he command them not to leave Jerusalem? I love Luke. He knew I'd be reading this, and I'd ask that question. So he answers it. Look what else it says. But to wait for what the Father had promised, which he said, you heard of from me. For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. He wanted them to wait for the Holy Spirit to come and indwell them. So why are they waiting in Jerusalem? To wait for the Holy Spirit to come and indwell them. Notice the phrase, what the Father had promised. When did the Father promised the indwelling of the Holy Spirit? When, when did that happen? Well, multiple times, go read your Old Testament. The promise of the New Covenant, the promise of the, the, the Holy Spirit, there's multiple passages in the Old Testament where the, God the Father promises through the prophets that the Holy Spirit would come. And it would be a whole new thing that had never happened before. One of those places in, is, is in Ezekiel. Uh, look here in Ezekiel 36, 26, and 27. Moreover, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a, uh, give you a heart of flesh. 
I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and you will be careful to observe my ordinances. Here's the promise. It says the Father promised this. And here's one of the many promises where the Father promised that. But Jesus also, look at again there in, in, um, uh, in verse 4, notice the phrase, you heard of from me. So knowing the Father promised, and Jesus says, I promise this. Jesus had told them when he left, he would send the Holy Spirit to indwell them. You remember, if those of you who were here when we went through the Gospel of John, in the upper room discourse, 14 through 17 of the Gospel of John, he spends more time there speaking about the Holy Spirit than any other place in all the New Testament. And Jesus promises and teaches about the Holy Spirit. He said, it's coming. So here, for example, in John 14, 16 through 17, look what Jesus said. I'll ask the Father, and he will give you another helper, that he may be with you forever. That is the Spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive, but it does not see him or know him, because it does not see him or know him, but you know him, because he abides with you, listen to this, and will be in you. The indwelling of the Holy Spirit is clearly what Jesus is referring to here and the reason he told them to wait. He said, wait here in Jerusalem for what the Father and for what I have promised you. Now look at verse 6 there in Acts 1. So when they had come together, they were asking him, saying, Lord, is it this time you're restoring the kingdom of Israel? The disciples clearly thought that now that Jesus had risen again from the dead, that God was going to usher in his physical kingdom on earth. That's clearly what they understand here. Or they wouldn't have said this. Lord, is it this time you're restoring the kingdom of Israel? Now, notice Jesus' response to them in verse 7. He said to them, It is not for you to know the times or epochs which the Father has fixed by his own authority. First, I want you to notice, Jesus does not rebuke them. He does not rebuke them. And often I hear people say, Hey, he rebuked them, you stupid disciples. Now, he did that a few times. But he didn't hear. He probably didn't say stupid disciples. But he doesn't rebuke them here. There was a, a, a real reason for them to expect the kingdom would be coming. Because in the Old Testament, this truth is one of those mysteries the New Testament talks about that was in the Old Testament, and they didn't understand it. They didn't understand that there would, there would be a spiritual kingdom of God. That he, Jesus talked about this often, is that the kingdom of God is here already, right? But he also talked about that the kingdom of God is coming. So it's this, 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 this balance and this tension for us of already not yet. And the not yet was the physical reign of God upon the earth. That was the not yet. But the already was the, the spiritual side. But they, they thought about the not yet. And that's all they understood. So he doesn't rebuke them. He just changes their focus. And, and, and notice it says, which the Father, I love this. Um, and he also makes a promise. Listen, which the Father has fixed by his own authority. Notice that word fixed or put, your translation may have said, or set. It's a word that means it's going to happen. God has said, boom, it is set in place. It will happen. The, the, the kingdom, this, this time, God has fixed or set or put into place already, right, when the kingdom will come. When what they're expecting, and even greater than what they're expecting, is going to happen. So there's an assurance to them, yes, it's going to happen, but not yet. It's not the time, and it's not what you need to focus on. It's what Jesus is saying. Don't make that your focus, the timing of this event. Many people, since them to this day, have spent most of their days fixing their time on the timing of when he is coming back. Please don't do that. 
And we're going to see here in a second what we should be doing. But many people do that. And, and, and they've, they've become, people say this, these so heavenly minded to no earthly good. Now, I think the true reality is that we're not heavenly minded enough and we become useless. All right? So there's a balance here, and I think Jesus gives that. But somebody just always, okay, you know, 2012 uh, or 2000, you know, all the, you know, Hellbop's Comet, you know, he's going to come back now. And you say over and over and over and over again, he's, he's coming down. I got the date, I got the hour, he's coming. Now, there's some signs that we know, but we don't know how long those signs are going to take place until it comes. And some of those signs, I feel like, are, have been, not are, are happening, but have been happening for a long time. All right? So we just, I want us to but also know that it's going to come. And that's what he wants to communicate to them. But don't make that our focus. That's God's business. Instead of making that, that, that this coming of the physical kingdom their focus, notice what Jesus says in verse 8. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be my witness both in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and even to the remotest part of the earth. Here we have the mission of God clearly presented. What is the mission of God for the church? Right here it is. Acts 1.8. This is the mission of God for the church. The main idea of the mission... um, is found in the words, you shall be my witnesses. This is both a promise and a command. Now, why do I say it's a promise? It's a promise because what he's saying here had not happened yet. It's getting ready to start in about 10 days when the Holy Spirit does come upon him like he promised and indwells them in a special, powerful way that never happened before in the history of the world. That's, that's what's going to really happen. So it, it, it's a promise. This is going to happen. You shall be my witness. You will be my witnesses. It's not a question. You're going to be my witnesses. But yet it's also a command. And why would I say that? Why would I say that this mission of God to be my witnesses is a command? Well, because I think that the apostles and the, the, the rest of those who follow Christ in the book of Acts understand it as a command because that's what they're about. The whole rest of the book of Acts. That's what they're doing is exactly what he commands them to do here, to be his witnesses. Witnesses are those who see something or they hear about it from others who saw it and they tell others the truth about it. A witness for Jesus and his mission is someone who tells others the truth about him. So what is the truth about Jesus we're to tell others? Well, it starts in Genesis and goes through Revelation. Now that might be a little bunch for people to swallow right now all at once. So how would you summarize Genesis through Revelation? And maybe that's a starting conversation we have someone. So let me just give you a few words to remember if you want to have a starting conversation with someone and be a witness of, of Christ. Because in Acts, we'll see this, um, this witness was both verbal and physical. If, our ver- if it's only verbal... We undercut it by not living it out. But if all we do is be nice to our neighbor, there's lots of people who are nice to their neighbors. Well, they're just a nice guy. They're just a nice girl. We've got to tell them why. We've got to tell them why our life is different. You have to ver- verbalize the gospel to be his witness. So it's both and. You can't have one without the other. So, But what are some of the things that we can say well, four, four words. If you want to write this down, you can. If you want to remember them, you can. God, man, Jesus, you. God, man, Jesus, you. 
There's four words. So what about God? What about God do they need to know? Who is he? Well, God deserves to be glorified. He's the creator of the world. He deserves to be glorified and worshipped above all things. He made us in an image so that we would be image bearers to take his glory to the world and tell them that he alone deserves to be glorified because he is the creator of the world. That's who God is. And God, there's a problem though with man. So God, man, our problem is this. Man refuses to glorify God. But all have sinned and fall short of what? The glory of God. We don't glorify God. Who do we glorify? Us. We're God. Just like in the beginning, just like Satan wanted to do. He wanted to be God. We all, without Christ, want to be God. Now, you may, I've never thought about being God. Well, if he's not your God, there's only one other option. You. All right? We, either, we glorify ourselves. And, 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 and our problem is that we glorify ourselves. And then it says the wages of sin is death. Eternal separation from God forever. That we have his just penalty of death upon us. So God, man, and then Jesus. God's provision. Jesus died and rose again so that we might be saved from the penalty and the power and ultimately the presence of sin. Jesus. He did that for us. Here's, that's the great news, isn't it? Although we're sinful and deserve hell, let's be honest, we have the wrath of God resting upon us, rightly so because we've sinned. God loved us so much he sent Jesus to take the penalty we deserved. Man, that is good news. Even if you're not an amen or out loud, there ought to be amen and in your heart, right? That's the greatest news ever. That's what it's called the gospel, good news. He did that, but there's also you and me. Man must respond to that. The command to repent and believe in Jesus Christ must be obeyed. To turn from trusting in yourself and glorifying yourself even if you don't even see it, that yourself, you're actually doing that, but you've got to turn from trusting yourself and turn and trust in Jesus who died in your place. In order to be witnesses, which we're commanded to be as followers of Jesus Christ, we must share that message. It doesn't be exactly like that, but it's got to contain those key elements. So just when you're wondering, what should I tell people? There you go. Right? God, sin, or God, man, Jesus, and you. Well, the definition of the mission of God is to be his witnesses. To be his witnesses. Jesus was asking these men and all who would follow him to be his witnesses to the world. This was an insurmountable task he was commanding them to fulfill. Think, let's just think about these 11 men that are left. Jesus is God. He's already hung himself, proven himself. He never really was a follower of Jesus. He was a follower of himself. And he used Jesus to get what he wanted. And we'll talk about that later. But just think about these 11 men. Jesus frequently re reprimanded them for their weak faith, which I've already mentioned. They were men who consistently misunderstood the nature of the kingdom of God. Men who in the midst of difficult events surrounding Christ's arrest and crucifixion, they failed miserably. They all tucked tail and ran. Their leader, Peter, boldly and harshly denied the Lord three times. All of them except for John were nowhere to be found during a crucifixion. They initially didn't receive the empty tomb even as a sign of, of, of Jesus' resurrection. They still doubted. And when Jesus appeared to them, they were hiding out wondering who would be next on the execution list. Thomas would not believe until he actually touched Jesus' hands and felt his sword-pierced side. 
These 11 men who walked with Jesus for 11 years, for three years, have proved to be weak and incapable of themselves of being his witnesses. These are the worst guys he could have chosen. Or were they? Even with all their failures, these 11 leaders, and approximately it seems like 120 people that were with him this time, maybe up to 500 as we saw in Acts, but not a huge group. They were going to be the leaders of this new thing called the church where Christ would indwell his people and they would be his witnesses. of a life-changing message. It wasn't an impressive group. I think we would all agree. The only one who had actually had an impressive resume was Judas of the 12. But this is exactly the type of people Jesus chose to change the world with the witness of his life and message of salvation. These are the kind of people he chooses. People who can't do it on their own so they don't get the glory. What hope could they have to succeed to be his witnesses? None. But Jesus gave them some hope. He gave them real hope that leads to assurance of the thing that he promised would happen. So how do you do this? Look at the words there. You will receive power, verse 8, when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. This should have reminded these 11 men of what Jesus told them in the upper room, at least all the things he told them in the upper room, about the Holy Spirit. Here's another example of that in John 14, 26. But the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring you remembrance all that I said to you. Jesus had promised that when he left them, God the Father would send the Holy Spirit to indwell them and equip them to fulfill their call to be his witnesses. Here in Acts 1.8, right before he ascends to the right hand of God, he reminds them of this truth. These unqualified, weak faith men and others that would come after them were going to rely on the power of God in them. Remember this. It's God the Holy Spirit. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, right? Remember this? One what, three who's. One God, three persons. This is God the Holy Spirit indwelling them to be his witnesses. And they would only need to wait ten days to see this promise fulfilled. Here was their hope. Here was the assurance that the mission of God would be accomplished through them. Now look at verse, the, 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 verse 8 again, the phrase, both in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and even to the remotest part of the earth. Here is the extent of the mission of God. The definition of the mission of God, in a sense, is to be his witnesses. So here's the extent of the mission of God. They will be witness to all these places and the people in them. And we'll look at that. That's pr- pretty amazing what he asked them to do here. All these places and the people in them, some of them which they hated. Because it came from a different background. Now, this is the outline of the book of Acts. All right? Jerusalem, chapters 1 through 7. Judea and Samaria, chapters 8 through 12. And the remotest part of the earth, chapters 13 through 28. That's exactly what happens. He says, this is going to happen. You're going to be my witnesses to all these places. And then you go read Acts, and that's exactly what happened. And guess what's still happening? 29. Or 28 just continued. We're still taking it to the remotest part of the earth. And it's happening. And you know what? Jerusalem is still happening too. I know. I know it's still happening. I saw it happen this week. Jerusalem's still happening. We're as witnesses and people are coming to faith in Jesus Christ. Right here. In our community. And outside our community around the world. Well, we're going to see this lived out as we study Acts. Now I just want to briefly look at these next few verses here in um, 
verses 9 through 11. I'm going to read them and point something out here for us. And after he had said these things, he was lifted up while they were looking on, and a cloud received him out of their sight. Now, Peter, James, and John said, we've seen this one before. All right? And as they were gazing intently, I think they were expecting him to come back. And I think this is why they're engaging intently. Look, they're engaging intently with the expectation, all right, for him to show back up. The sky, while he was go- the sky while he was going, behold, two men in white clothing stood beside him. They also said, men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into the sky? This Jesus who has been taken up from you into heaven will come in just the same way as you have watched him go into heaven. Here's the motivation for the mission of God. Where's the motivation? He's coming again. He's going to come again. And guys, no, it's not this time right now. So there's an interval between this time and when he comes again, there's an interval right now that you're to be my witnesses. Because there's going to come a time when that's going to be closed off. Jared just read in Luke 13, if you, if you listen real closely, and I saw this this morning as I was reading Luke 13. It says he's going to close the door. And there's going to be people on the outside wanting to get in. There's going to be a time when the door is closed. And that's when the kingdom does come. There won't be a chance. So there's an urgency. He's saying, be urgent about being the witness. He's coming again. So between his ascension and his return, they were to be about his mission of being his witnesses by the power of the indwelling spirit to all people everywhere. The mission of God. So as I promised, I'm going to give you four ways by which we, by God's grace, can carry out the mission of God for the church. First of all, be his witnesses. With your life, And with your lips, tell others the wonderful news that Jesus saves and call them to repent and believe. Evangelism is not just telling what Jesus did and what he even did for them, but evangelism includes calling them to trust in him. That's what we're called to do, to be his witnesses. Secondly, be his witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria, and to the remotest part of the world. What's this look like for you? If you saw the video, right there, there's some places, right? that we frequent even right here in Jerusalem that we can be about the mission of God and be his witnesses in those places thirdly be his witness by his power you got to come to the same realization that these 11 guys did in the beginning you can't do it you cannot do it and if you're trying just I'm telling you quit don't be Nike just do it Be someone empowered by the Holy Spirit and rely on His power in and through you and then do it. Fourthly, be His witnesses with a sense of urgency. Remember, He's coming again. Now, I grew up in a church. We used to sing this old southern gospel song, The King is Coming. The King is Coming. And you know what? The truth of that song is still true today. He's coming. He's coming again. And that'll be the day when the door is closed and there's people all around us dying and lost and they're heading to a place called hell and God has called us to come and be about his mission being his witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea and Samaria the Romans part of the earth by the power of the Holy Spirit so they too can be part of his kingdom let's pray Lord thank you so much for your word thank you for this book of Acts where we can go and look and be instructed and be challenged and Lord be changed Uh, And so, Lord, we ask, Lord, that you would help us by the power of the Holy Spirit that resides in every believer to be about your mission of being witnesses. Witnesses 
of your amazing grace towards sinful people. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.